So Barker and I are just looking at Pitching Ninja. The uh, breakdown of the filthiest sliders of the year. And the reason we're doing that is from last year. The reason we're doing that is we're going to have Matt Brash on. Uh, the Seattle Mariners at 11.30. He's a Kingston, Ontario native. Made his MLB debut in the 12th. Five and a third innings. Six strikeouts. He makes a uh, appearance in the Pitching Ninja Award. In double A. <laughs> he was in double A. Mm-hmm. So we'll get a chance to talk to Matt Brash about the slider, about winning a job in a team that the Seattle Mariners, a team that has to be at least thinking, at least thinking going to the playoffs. You would think at so. At least thinking. Been gave $100 million to a left-handed pitcher. You'd certainly think so. So, yeah, I think they got as good a chance as anybody in the American League. They, they got a good lineup, good first four or five, got a decent defense. Could come down to pitching. A reminder that Barker and myself will be on Blue Jays talk following every Blue Jays game this year. Exception of Saturdays, Blake Murphy will hold down the fort on Saturdays. And uh, you can call us always and take part in the Blue Jays discussion immediately following games. The numbers is always 416-870-0590, star 591 590 will be on tonight after game four of the Jays Yankee series, and uh, it will be Kevin Gossman on the mound for the Jays, Luis Severino for the New York Yankees. So we're still awaiting formal confirmation of Teoscar Hernandez's injury, Teoscar Hernandez's status. Uh, the Jays have already are already without Danny Jansen, their catcher. They know they're going to be without him for probably a month with an oblique injury. Obliques are just, uh, I mean, they're, they're, they're just awful things in terms of trying to put a timeline on them. So how does a general manager, how does a general manager handle an early season injury to a key position? And I'm focusing specifically on a position player. How do general managers react to that? And at what point do you consider a trade either to address the situation temporarily or on a longer-term basis. Dan O'Dowd is MLB Network analyst and former Rockies GM, and the MLB Network has the Angels and Rangers tonight at 8 o'clock, and you can watch Dan after the game on the Emmy Award-winning MLB tonight. Mr. O'Dowd, you're an Emmy winner. Thanks for joining us. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, guys. Yeah, I'm an Emmy winner along with my other 50 friends at the network, so... Uh, I appreciate that, though. So how does the GM handle an injury? It's uh, next man up, honestly. That's what you build depth for in the wintertime. Injuries are going to be a part of this season. I think it's going to be the biggest storyline. So whoever survives these injuries will ultimately be the ones that end up playing in October. So, guys, I mean, it's unfortunate. Oblique, you, you, know, you hit it so well that oblique injuries are such a difficult injury to, to uh, project and how long they're going to take to heal. But... When you have this short of spring training, um, there's no way that you can replicate game speed baseball action um, until you get into the core of the season. That's why, you know, shortened spring training this year is going to lead to some of these types of soft tissue injuries. Dan, Dan, you're the perfect guy to have on about this question. You know, the catching situation with Danny Jansen, I know you've spoken very highly about him. You think he'll turn out to be a really good catcher. I did. But I gotta, I gotta ask. Being a GM and having a your top prospect be a catcher, your big league catcher goes down early in the season. You have a plan for your top prospect, which is Gabriel Moreno, at the minor league level. 
Yep. Could that make you change your plan earlier, or is it unfair to the player at the minor league level? Well, I, you know, I don't think you can answer that with one brush because I think it's, you know, it's different for each player. I would say that position it's hard because that is a position that just takes a lot of quality repetition to develop the type of skill level. It's like Danny Jansen, for example. Like you guys, I hope you saw what I saw at the end of last year. Like we're beginning to see a different player now than we did his first few years in the big leagues with the Blue Jays. Just an overall comfort level of the game. He was slowing the game down offensively. He started to turn into a different player. It's a position that just takes a long time to actually get really good at. Some players are freakish, and it doesn't take that amount of time. But historically, for me, it's a position that's really difficult to rush because you do, especially if the bat is ahead of the glove. The glove may never catch up. And uh, it really, you, you do a disservice to the player and the impact that player can have on your organization. So, no, I think the Blue Jays get by with what they have. Uh, Danny's injury shouldn't be, you know, a season-ending injury. Um, so I don't think there's any reason to panic. And, you know, give Mr. Kirk an opportunity to step in and actually what, what he can do with every day at best. Dan, how hard is it, is it not to to overreact? Like, like uh, you know, Teoscar Hernandez is a cleanup hitter. He protects Vladdy a little bit. How hard is it to not, uh, you know, turn what you have that's really good, like the top of your order? You know, you got you got Springer, you got Bo, you got Vladdy, and now you're starting to think about what do I do with them? Do I do I mix them around? Do I disrupt what they're doing, or do I leave them alone and I figure out everybody else? How hard is that as a GM and as an organization this early in the season? Uh, well, I think when you're a young GM, it's really hard. I think you're. You know, you want to, you're a problem solver, so you, you, you want to creatively think and solve the issues. I think as you gain a little bit more experience, you realize that trying to fix something in the short term could create something really bad in the long term. So I, I think the biggest thing in this game, that the only thing that gets rewarded in this game consistently is patience, which is thought process. Mm-hmm. So I think you're patient, and uh, you don't want to disrupt the strength of the club. I mean, obviously, Teoscar really protects Vlad. And so, that means, you know, Guriel is going to have to step up now and protect Vlad because the bottom line is is that if you don't have somebody hitting behind Vlad, Vlad's not going to get any pitches to hit. Uh, but you let that kind of unfold because by not showing confidence in your other players, from a managerial and GM perspective, the message you're sending to your clubhouse is that we don't think we're good enough. And I think that's the worst message to send because, hey, a lot of great things happen when players get hurt and other players get an opportunity to step up and play. If you, if those players that step up and play and play well, you're now a much more deeper, better team for the long run of the season, which is going to have so much attrition involved. Dan, do you think that the fact that analytics are so much a part of this game now makes it a little easier to not, not get fooled by the fool's gold you sometimes get early in the spring? You know, a guy comes out of spring training, has a great spring training, carries it over to a, a really good month or something like that. The, the analytics make it a little easier to, to figure that out and, and maybe not fall in love with something that is frankly just going to be almost like a baseball's version of a one-night stand. Actually, I think they make it more difficult. Uh, really? I think analytics have become an excuse. Yeah, I think they've become an excuse, guys, for times for people really not to know the game inside now. I think analytics provide an incredible roadmap to a decision. But uh, I think eventually, at the end of the day, I think your your 
analytics combined with a really fundamental understanding of the game and how the game is played within the confines of a team and a culture um, really allows you to arrive at the right decisions. I think the issue with analytics is they become, when they become the answer for everything, you really are only looking at one side of the equation and not the entire picture, and I think that's where it gets extremely dangerous. And I think those are some of the issues that within our game right now that are a little bit problematic, from my perspective anyway, is because I think people, younger people in particular, have stopped learning the game um, and depend upon analytics for all their answers. And again, I think they only show you one view of a particular situation. Hey, I, I know you saw Vladdy last night, what he did at the plate. Did, does anything he d- does now surprise you? No, but maybe we should all go out and get stepped on and stitches <laughs> in our hands. <laughs> I mean, God, you know, we're not, we, we have to stop talking about him as one of the best first basemen in the game and start recognizing that he is one of the best players in our game. Yeah. And, um, he just took everything so easily. That ball he hit out the dead center. I mean, I realized there wasn't a, a great slider from from Garrett, but I mean, my gosh, he just he can just do things offensively in the box. You know, there he he uh, reminds me so much of Manny Ramirez in my career. It's like um, Manny may look uncomfortable in any other aspect of his life, and I'm not saying Vlad is that way, or any other aspect on the field. But when he got into home plate, when he stepped into that box. It was like he was staking his territory, and it was the where he was the most relaxed of any point in time, you know, on a baseball field. And Vladdy's the same way. It's like when you see him walk and step up in the box, there's just a, uh innate presence about him that you just feel, even from watching it on TV, that he is going to do something spectacular. And the other thing that I have so much respect him for is that, and I feel Bo Bichette is the same exact way, I am blown away by young players that never show any angst or panic at all. Mm. Like, you know, they hadn't necessarily swung the bat exceptionally well up until that game. And yet, there's never any panic in any of those kids. Like, there's this incredible belief in their ability. And the game is really hard. It shakes your foundation to feel that way all the time. And he just blows me away that this guy never looks like he's in any kind of panic at all. Yeah, yeah, it's it's funny. Whenever I listen to your network, I, I listen to the guys that talk about hitting, and they and they always talk about how quickly the great ones make adjustments. And that's what I've noticed differently about Vladdy from early this season, from last year, is how quickly he makes the adjustment. It's like early in the season here, the first couple of games, Texas was trying to get him out in off the plate to see if he'd get himself yeah, out. And then, yet, yeah. absolutely. And then yesterday, you could tell he was looking for that. And when you got a guy that that is that good talent wise can make adjustments mentally, I I just don't know what the ceiling is. Uh, I don't think so either. I mean, it's just if he can just stay physically healthy and continues to take care of his body and get his rest and eat right and all those other things that add up to being a really good player, there is no ceiling. You know, it's like when you talk about making an adjustment, most players have to make the adjustment to get to the ball and to cheat on it. Yeah, his hands are so lightning quick. Uh, and his, his bat plane is so incredibly consistent that his adjustment is just a thought process. It's not a physical adjustment. It's just a thought process to say, you know, I just got to figure out how to get to that ball a little quicker. <laughs> and then he's got the ability to do that. Um, I mean, the only time that he gets, him, gets out is when he gets himself out. You know, when his chase rate goes up and, you know, he's getting a little anxious to, 
attack the ball when he's not in that frame of mind. It's just it's really incredible to watch, which that makes this Blue Jay team, I mean, so fun to watch. They're, they're, they have, you know, I, I look at it, and I feel like you've got to have three to four, I call them aircraft carriers, to win. When you looked at those great Houston teams, and they had Springer, and they had Altuve, and they had Correa, um, I mean, and then they had all those, uh, and then Bregman, they had four aircraft carriers, and then they had a great supporting cast. When you look at the Blue Jays, I mean, they've got Springer, and they've got Bo, and they've got uh, Vladdy and Teoscar, and their aircraft carriers, and then they've got a great supporting cast. So, to me, their season's really going to come down to is that it's going to be their starting pitching, and if they can figure out um, how to get the ball, you know, to their closer, Romano, that's still a, you know, that's a work in progress for every team in the game right now. We're uh, just a, a week into the season. Well, actually, we're not. Yeah, we're about a week into the season right now. I know it's early days and every and everything, but is there anything you've seen early this year, Dan, that that stands out to you as maybe a bit of a surprise or or a trend that we need? Uh, that we need to keep an eye on. I know we, we saw the whole thing with Clayton Kershaw yesterday in the perfect game, um, and, and that's, I mean, that, that's always going to be a talking point when that happens, although I, I think Clayton pretty much explained it clearly. But is there anything you see that you think might be a trend? Yeah, I, I do, and it's too early to tell. It's small sample size theater, but um, I think teams are becoming a little bit more proficient from an offensive standpoint how to approach velocity. And uh, I think the development aspect of the offensive part of the game, everything in our game up to now analytically and technology-wise has been done to suppress runs. Mm -hmm. Um, I think there's a real focus in organizations right now on run creation. And, uh, you know, the Cleveland situation is fascinating to me because I think they've they've put together a model of players. By product, they're more affordable players, so that's simply maybe the way they've gone down. But they've got a bunch of kids that you know, really don't chase a whole lot and have high contact rates, more high contact rates than chase rates. And uh, I think the teams are really beginning to understand, like so, of keeping guys disciplined and their pitch recognition ability to stay in the strike zone is the best way to attack velocity. And uh, I think they're becoming really, really more proficient than their their uh, ability to teach that and their ability to try to really instill that within their offensive approaches. So I'm anxious to see how that plays out through the course of the season because I think it would be really good for our game. I don't, I'm not just talking about home runs. Right. I'm talking about the ability to you know, actually put the ball in play on a more consistent basis. It's interesting because I know the Jays have made Dave Hudgens their hitting strategist, and I, I was joking with somebody in the organization. I said, you know, it's getting like an NFL staff now, quality control coaches and, and you know, defensive specialists, and et cetera, yeah. et cetera. But, you know, his, his point was exactly what you made. He said, you, and he said, you've got to understand that the young kids now are comfortable talking about this stuff because they've come up with it. So it's not, there is, you know, you, you, you may roll your eyes at somebody being a hitting strategist, but the young guys understand how to use that information. Well, and Dave, too. Dave is an experienced baseball man with a ton of wisdom. So I think there's a danger of using the information in a way that complicates hitting. Um, but I think it, it's more about approaches, um, you know, to the game itself without overcomplicating. And I think that's what strategists do now in our game because the, the analytical people can put together a ton of information, but how that information is applied day in and day out in a way that's simple to digest and apply to the field staff and then ultimately the players on the field makes it powerful and effective. 
I think the game is beginning to figure out that right now. Um, it's taken the intellectual brain power of the front office and applying it in a way where it's instinctively digestible to the people that ultimately have to perform on the field with it. And I think the team has to expand its staff because the volumes of information creates an almost impossibility for individuals to handle that by themselves. With, with the shortened spring training, do, do you think it's the right approach to just base what you're seeing off of number of pitches thrown by a starting pitcher? No. Yeah, see, I'm not a big believer in that. I mean, I've gone back and forth on my answer on the Clayton Kershaw thing last night, too. I'm kind of second-guessing myself on it. I'm a big believer, guys, and you know, that injuries happen when you're in a fatigue state, a very fatigue state, and you're trying to execute a specific skill, so from a pitching standpoint. So how do you get in a fatigue state? It's high-stress pitches, high-stress situations where you really have to execute pitches. There's a visual look to see how much max effort is going into every single pitch. So pitch counts were developed as a way to try to prevent injuries, but there was no scientific or form, formula that was established to get there. It was random, and no one has ever been able to define that for me. And so I think it's a comp- combination of really trying to technology-wise understand when a player is in a fatigue state, which now is measurable in our game, combined with an eye test of experience to look at, those are high-stress pitches that individual is trying to execute, combined with the third one where you begin to see just a a drop-off of stuff trying to execute pitches. And I think that as we evolve as an industry, we have to do those three things better. We have to have wearables that really determine baseline studies during a game when a guy begins to really get into fatigue state. And then our dialogue and conversations more have to lean to itself about high-stress situations. Like, for me, a high-stress situation is when a starting pitcher is getting his pitch count in the high 20s. When you pass a 30-pitch mark in a given inning, that's a really, really high-stress inning. That's a red flag. I always felt that a pitcher can't go through any more than three red flags in one game And he might not get hurt that game, but he's going to get hurt somewhere down the road if that behavior continues to, you know, to be consistent. And then the third thing is is that I I think we have to trust uh, experienced baseball people that are watching the game that can begin to see that the quality of the stuff, the swings that hitters are getting off, are of higher quality. Saying all that, Clayton Kershaw had none of that yet. (laughs) He never had high-stress pitches. You know, he was like playing catch. He's not throwing 95 anymore. He averaged a little under 90. And yet the Dodgers and Dave were stuck in a position that his, he, he, he had a simulated game with 75 pitches that doesn't any way, shape, or form emulate game speed at the major league level. It was really like an impossible situation to put in. I know that's a long answer to a really short question, but I think as industry, we need to start getting away from pitch counts and becoming a little bit more mm-hmm. specific when we're starting to look at each individual pitcher and the fatigue factor. Dan, really good of you to join us today. Yeah. Ter- terrific insight as always. We really appreciate that's it. That's great stuff. Thanks, Dan. Yeah, I appreciate it. Take care. Yeah, I love talking to you guys. So you guys ask great questions. I love listening to you. I- I appreciate you guys having me on the show, honestly. It's uh, fun to talk about the game of baseball with knowledgeable baseball people. So thanks for having me on. Thank thanks you, man. Lot, we man. appreciate it. That is Dan O'Dowd, MLB Network analyst, former Rockies GM. And again, MLB Network will have the Angels Rangers tonight at 8 o'clock.
Eastern uh, time. And you can watch Dan after the game in the Emmy award-winning MLB tonight. It's an Otani start tonight, I think. Yeah, I, 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 sort of, I sort of chuckled when I heard him say eye test. I, 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 it's 2022. They, they do eye test now? Like I, it's, to, to listen to him break down what a GM would be looking for, I wanted to ask that question about the number of pitches, more from a GM's mm-hmm. thought process and what he would be seeing if he's standing or sitting where he's sitting and watching a guy. And to listen to him talk the way he did about pitching and, and just the number of pitches, his, it, just, it just puts it where it should be. Like the way you think about every little part of, or every aspect of what it goes through to put a good product on the field. Man, that's some kind of good stuff. If, you, if you're a fan of baseball and you, you can't listen to Dan or Dad about talking baseball, you turn the channel because it doesn't get any better than that. Yeah, no, he, he uh, I mean, he always, he always hits it out of the park. And it was interesting hearing him talk about how GMs, how, how, you, how you react or how you don't react to this. And your, your question about Gabriel Moreno was, was really intriguing because – I've covered a lot of I've covered a lot of catching prospects and seen the way organizations bring them up. And I, I mean, I go back the, the the Expos had a guy named Greg Colburn who was can't miss. He Colburn, I'm sorry, can't miss. He's now a major league coach, and he blew his arm out in spring training, throwing a ball back to the mound, and he basically that was his his catching career. He was a bit of a hybrid, a catcher, and a you know, and, and, and a DH, Michael Barrett, another guy covered. And of course here with the, the, the Jays, people forget JP Aaron Sebia, how highly yep. touted he was, how highly touted he was coming out. And it really is, it's a fine balancing act when you're dealing with, with the offensive aspect of the game and then kind of the institutional knowledge slash defensive slash catching aspect of the game. You can't, as someone once explained to me, you can't force the knowledge on the catcher. Yeah. You can't force him to learn more about the game. I mean, you just, you, you can't, that doesn't happen. That has to happen at a natural pace. I, and I understand, listen, if, if Danny Jansen's out for a while and if this, and, and if, and if Alejandro Kirk doesn't hit, uh, people are going to be bringing up that question. You know, people are going to be asking about Gabriel Moreno, especially if he, if he starts hitting at triple mm-hmm. I don't know. I, uh, that that is the situation I'm watching right now is the catching situation. Yeah, I, I always look at it as it's not the kid's fault. It's not the kid's fault that somebody got hurt and now you're having to rush Correct. the kid to come up, especially in this situation. The same logic with moving Vladdy down in the order, right? Oh, it's not Vladdy's. It's not Vladdy's there fault. There you that go. He got it's, that's, that's that. That's, that's good perfect. Point. Oh yeah. So you you got to remember that. I I was the same one when I, I remember we went on Blue Jays talk after the game and I brought Moreno's name up. Yep. I said. Call him up if you think he's that good, and then you take a step back and go, uh, is it his fault exactly. that Danny Jansen got hurt and now you know he's still trying to learn everything that it takes to be a baseball player? Forget about being a big leaguer. Yep. Being a baseball player, and I think we got to remember that and give the kid a chance to get his feet wet and, and just everything it takes to routines. Talk about routines. He don't know routine. He don't know what the routine is that, that's also, going to work for him, and, and, and he can apply that at the big league level. And, and Buck made the point during uh, the telecast, it was either last night or the day before. It may have been the game before. Where he talked about, you, you have to keep in mind that Moreno got to spring training late because of his visa mm-hmm. issue. So, yeah, just let, man, let the, let the, let the dude breathe. You know, it, this is a guy that was catching and playing third base last year. 
and the Jays have made the commitment to him as a catcher right now, which is good. We all want that to be the case. But just let the kid let the kid just kind of breathe down in triple A. What if what if he comes up here and he struggles? How will you handle that? And I don't, has he struggled at the, at the minor league level yet? That's the question too. You you got to know how. It's like Bo Bichette. I remember when he first came up and he was like oh for twenty five or something. Mm-hmm. He knows what it feels like. Yep. Like Vladdy came up. Vladdy had no idea how to struggle. No. He was struggling at the big league level with the elite pitching guys who are game planning issues. They don't do that in the minor leagues. Yep. He dominated the minor leagues. So let him struggle. Let him go through that on both sides of the ball. And then when he does that and he and he you know, peeks through the other side and figures out how to do it. That way, when he comes to the big league, he's going to struggle at the big league level. This, now he knows how it feels, and he can get through it quicker. This is a three- or four-year proposition with this team. Yep. And I don't want to do anything that could mess up Gabriel Moreno because at some point, you know, Vladdy and Bo are going to have to get paid. They just are. Mm. One of them's going to have to get paid. They're going to have to get paid a lot. And trust me, folks, this team for for this team to be a contender over the next three years, it's going to need somebody coming in on a low salary, having an unbelievable year. Yeah. I, it, ju- it, it, it just is. And there's so much, I think, when you look at the, 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 the window of opportunity for this team, there's so much tied up in Gabriel Moreno and, or- and Orelvis Martinez being successful I, I just don't want to rush it. And you know what? If that means it's going to be a, a rocky first half of the season, I mean, I hate to say it, I'm kind of prepared for that. I'm kind of prepared for that. I just do not want to go all in on Gabriel Moreno I mean, they right still, now. I, I mean, they, they, they don't. They still have pieces around the catching position that could hide it. Now, I know getting it through in the pitch calm, the pitch calm's a work in progress. You, you can deal with that. But I think they have enough around John Schneider. Danny Jansen's still around. He's, yes. he's sort of walking guys through that he's he's caught that, you know, how it looks, when it looks. I think there's enough pieces around there that they won't miss too much of a beat because of the, the lineup that they do still have. Yeah. But just you know, don't get in such a big hurry. Remember the name Matt Brash. You are going to be hearing a lot about him. He is a native of Kingston, Ontario. Made his Major League debut on April 12th, five and a third inning, six strikeouts. This kid's the real deal, folks. There have been a lot of people. There have been a lot of people in and around baseball that have spent the last two years waiting for this guy to get to the major leagues. There is a literal, there is a literal cottage industry online in talking about Matt Brash, the pitcher, and Matt Brash's slider. So... We're going to join that conversation. Matt Brash will join us next. This is Blair and Barker on Sportsnet 590, The Fan 360, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. Discussing the biggest stories that matter to Toronto sports fans. The Fan Morning Show with J.D., Blake, and English. Be sure to subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, it's always fun when we get another Canadian in the major leagues. Um, especially when it's a Canadian that uh, comes with a, an intriguing backstory, as does our, our next guest. He's only got a few minutes, so I want to get to Matt Brash of the Seattle Mariners, a native of Kingston, Ontario. Made his major league debut on April 12th, five and a third innings, six strikeouts. 
Matt, thanks so much for joining Kevin and myself today. As I said, I know your uh, time's valuable. You got a bullpen to get to, so I'll, I'll get right to it. As I was doing research on the 2022 season a couple of months ago, I ran into uh, video of you and, and Rob Friedman and Pitching Ninja, and, and it's like I fell into this rabbit hole of people talking about your slider. So can you tell us about your slider? Because it does seem as if it's kind of the cottage industry here in baseball talking about Matt Brash's slider. Um, yeah, it definitely gets a lot of attention, but I mean, um, first of all, I just, I, I throw like a slider and a, like a knuckle curve. Um, so they're two different pitches, but they kind of blend together. It's really just, uh, the velo is different and a little bit more, uh, like ne- negative vertical movement on the curveball. But I mean, yeah, the slider last year was definitely my best pitch is I, I threw it a lot and basically just a big sweeper, like mid eighties, usually when it's on and, um, really late movement, and I kind of throw it exactly how I throw my fastball, so I feel like it um, is really deceiving to hitters. But, I mean, in my debut, I threw both pitches a lot, um, and I thought they were really good, both of them. So, did the, yeah, uh, but two different pitches. Did the short and spring training affect uh, the break on your slider or your knuckle curveball? Um, yeah, it usually takes me a couple outings just to get um, back into the swing of things. My slider wasn't as good as I would have liked, last outing but the curveball was on and it was really sharp um but yeah it usually just takes me a while to get warmed up with both pitches tell us a little bit about your path to the majors uh we know that you went to bay ridge secondary in kingston you uh were drafted out of niagara university you missed uh i believe you didn't play in 2020 because of the covid covid cancellation Mm -hmm. of minor league baseball you were part of a trade you come over to the mariners organization and essentially you you won a job out of spring training, didn't you? Yeah, I mean, definitely been a long journey. Um, but, yeah, that trade from the Padres to the Mariners was definitely a huge opportunity for me just kind of um, get off to, like, a, a new kind of, like, fresh start. And I, I made the most of it during that COVID year when I, I wasn't playing. I just kind of I worked out really hard, gained a lot of weight, um, kind of got my body in shape. And then I kind of saw some increases in velo, which – made my off-speed pitches sharper um, and was throwing them harder. So I came back with the Mariners in spring training, throwing harder. My stuff was better. Um, and I was just, yeah, really happy with how I performed last year. Matt, tell me about your first game. I remember my first game, I stand on the foul line, and I remember I had my belt so tight I couldn't breathe. And I can remember everything <laughs> just looked so big. Is there some that, you know, yeah. you, you remember? That was when Fernando Vina ran over to you and said, kid, loosen yeah, the yeah. belt. Don't right? be afraid. Yeah, yeah, you can breathe easier. <laughs> but is there is there something that you remember, you know, that, that took you, you know, you threw a pitch in a bullpen, you were like, oh, okay, I'm fine now. Was there something you remember about that? Um, I mean, yeah, I, I felt actually really comfortable um, pregame. Always once I get out on the field, um, I feel like at home and I kind of lock it in in the locker room and stuff before the game, I get a little nerves or a little butterflies going, but once I'm out there, I was fine. It was more like when I um, got pulled in the sixth inning, um, I was walking back to the, the dugout and they're playing that song and everyone was like waving goodbye to me and stuff. And I looked up and there's like 40,000 people waving to me. So <laughs> I was like, wow, this is kind of, this is happening. This is real. Cause when I'm pitching, I'm kind of just dialed in on home plate and I don't really hear anything. But as soon as I got pulled, I kind of, 
um, unfocused and kind of took it all in for the first time for sure. How important was Niagara to your success? Obviously, you get, as I said, you got drafted out of there. Um, but how important was that to your success? And, and was that when you is that when you sort of realized, hey, I can make it to the majors? Was there noticeable interest in you then? Um, well, yeah, I kind of always knew I had a really good arm and even out of high school in Canada, I had, I, I could have gone in like the draft, but I decided to go to school just because I was a smaller kid and I never lived away from home before. So I kind of wanted to, um, grow and experience college. Um, thought that'd be really beneficial for me. So yeah, Niagara was a perfect fit. I got to start right away freshman year and get all that experience. And that program was great to me. And um, kind of gave me a platform just to be noticed from scouts during my draft year for sure. Is is there anything that you've taken away from Robbie Ray watching him pitch? Is there a certain pitch, a, a grip? What have you noticed from him? Yeah, Robbie's, first of all, Robbie's awesome. Just a great guy and he's helped me out a lot already. Um, but, I mean, I think it's just the fact that he throws primarily two pitches like fastball slider, but he's super dominant with them, and he was just saying that um, – he just tries to be really, really, really good with those two pitches. And, I mean, he won a Cy Young with it. And he's such a great pitcher that, um, I mean, I just watch his bullpens, watch what he does to be a professional and um, kind of learning that way. But he's also just a great guy and has helped me out a lot for sure. Have you arranged uh, or looked ahead at all to Toronto, Seattle, family, the entire city of Kingston coming down? The 401 might be busy. <laughs> Yeah, if I play, if I'm pitching in Toronto, I'm, there's going to be quite a few people there for sure. Um, just with the city being pretty excited, and I went to school around there. I have a lot of friends in Toronto too, so it's pretty special if I got to pitch there for sure. Matt, listen, we appreciate your time. As I said, I know you got a bullpen to do. Congratulations on the debut. Stay healthy, keep it going, and uh, we'll look forward to chatting with you again. Be well. Thanks, Matt. Be- yeah, awesome. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. Take care. That is Matt Brash of Bay Ridge Secondary High School in Kingston, Ontario. I, I laughed when I when he said my my slider wasn't as good as I thought it should be. And that that first, I mean, if you pull we were looking at right, it, yeah, 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 it was pretty good. Like you know, I know I, I think he hung one to Roberts that he hit out to right center field, but other than that, it was yeah. I, it's it's when you listen to younger kids talk now that are at the big league level, they talk differently than I, when I was a young kid in the big league. Talking leagues. about vertical drop. It's just, yeah, the way they talk, how much confidence they have in their stuff, how, how advanced they are already about what, they were, what they're trying to do in a game and what they're trying to do on the mound. It's, he got good stuff. Now it's about, you know, refining it and mechanics. And, but you don't want to overwhelm them. I talk about this all the time. You talk about it. It's about taking a little in and letting a lot of that go out yeah, the other it's side. About and it's those, learning. Sure. I always refer to the Paul Quantrill, Cal Quantrill story. Yep. Learning how to tell major league coaches or coaches to go bleep themselves. It's essentially. hard. It's it, hard to do. Yeah. It's very hard to do, but the ones that are good at doing it and, you know, you're seeing the lips moving and you don't really hear what's coming out. It's that kind of thing. It just sounds like he's a smart kid and he's got it figured yeah. out. And then on top of it, he's There's got great stuff. Stuff is, if, if, yeah, folks, yeah. if you get a chance, I mean, I'm sure a lot of baseball fans, but if you get a chance, just Matt Brash. And, and pitching ninja and just watch just watch the pitches yeah just watch what the ball does i mean that's the only word to describe it yeah 
tunneling and late movement and you know depth on it and all the things that that, that go into a knuckle curve too. Not many guys throw a knuckle curve well, anymore, I, do they? Yeah, I, I, you know, I think it is with guys that want to do what they want to do with another pitch, like a okay. slider, and you sure. you want to so because basically you're gripping a slider and a curveball sort of the same way to have a knuckle curve. It's just a different feel to you. So okay. you know now that if it feels different, I can make it move differently and I can make it go where I want it to go. So that's sort of why you're getting the knuckle curve. It's almost like a grip it and rip it thing. If you grip it the right way on the seams the way you want, gripping it with the knuckle and having one finger longer than the other one, obviously, where you can get that real snap that you want, more 12-6 break, right? Mm-hmm. Than that 1-7 to seven break that he ultimately wants on the slider. So he's... It looks he's got a little something for a righty. He's got a little something for a lefty. Start commanding the fastball. Sounds like that's what he's taking away from Robbie Ray is. You know, you get good at two. You don't need four. Get really good at two, and you can work your way through some starts most of the time. You know what time it is? Speaking mm. of time. Barker's back leg bits. Pelado, Kevin Baker. El envío saca batazo de fly profundo al bosque derecho. Cuadrangular bestial. We said Barker's Bits, not Baker. It's time for Barker's Back Leg Bits. All right, this is a part of the show where we let you come up with a question for Kevin Barker or questions for Kevin Barker. You can follow me on social media, SN Jeff Blair on Twitter, and you can DM me with your question for the show. I usually send out, you can DM me anytime, but I usually send it out about two hours before the show just to remind people and we have got uh, we got a lot <laughs> we've got a lot of questions here good um and i'm i actually this is the one i wanted steve metzger and i didn't notice this steve so uh it'll be interesting to see if barker noticed it this is from steve metzger question for barker What's with Bo and his leg lift, even with two strikes? Has he given up in his normal two-strike approach? Now, the reason I'm asking is I thought I saw him one swing with two strikes. It, yeah, in, yeah. The, in the Not in the opener, but in the opening series. I, I thought I saw him lift. Now, I have, I have noticed that. He does that a lot against certain pitchers that he faces that he don't think he can generate enough uh, a separation between its lower half and driving his hands level through the hitting zone. I do know that. So it, it is early, at least early in the season. A lot of the times he goes by feel mm-hmm. on whether he's using a two strike thing. We've seen him use it throughout a season, completely two strikes. He'll go up. Oh, Oh, he uses a two strike approach. Sometimes with two strikes, he doesn't use the two strike approach. It's all about feel. So if you see that, Steve, or anybody watching Bo, that would tell you he's a little in between and he's not comfortable. And a lot of times, too, it's about guy slow on the mound, like his slow delivery gives him time to lift the leg. Mm-hmm. And he feels like, you know, part of the game, he's trying to drive a ball, nobody's on base. A lot of what he does with his lower half, the score tells him whether he wants to do it or not. Runner on second base, two outs, late in the game, he's facing a tough pitcher, he's going to do it. Wants to put the ball in play. Not trying to drive a ball, right? Just one puts it in play to one side of the field. Late in the game, scores tied. He wants to drive baseballs in the big part of the field. You may see the leg kick a little bit more. So the scoreboard dictates a lot of the times on what he's trying to do with his lower half. Hope that helps. Steve. Yeah, he uh, and that's. I mean, of course, I think it was a couple of spring trainings ago where Bo had his kind of his famous comment about how 
he kind of approached uh, hitting like it was golf. He said, I got my long game, mm-hmm. and then I got my short game when yeah. there's two strikes on it. Yeah, good managers always let the score the, the scoreboard dictate what they do and when they do it. Hitting is no different. Big, bo- big boys that walk to the plate, the scoreboard will tell you on what you're trying to do, and that's why you may see Bo with two strikes. He might kick it to the ear because he wants to get frisky because the team needs him in that time. So it's, a, it's, a, it's all determined on, on part of the game and the, and the scoreboard. Okay, I got I to gotta mention this guy because he's been having a little fun with us. Adam Tersini, the second time you've tweeted or you, you've DM'd me in this, he was looking back at our conversation about hitting – Vladdy second and how the last thing you want to see is the game end with Vladdy on deck. Mm-hmm. Now he's mentioned that we've seen it a couple of times already, including last night where it would have been nice to have Vladdy get a shot. He was just having fun with us. He was just having fun with us. But uh, we, yeah. you know, we, we've addressed that, that. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, right now. If Vladdy tells me he wants to hit ninth, I go, eh, right. yeah, it's, it doesn't Adios. matter. What, uh, uh, you know, with all due respect to everybody that talks <clears throat> about Vladdy, it has, it, it, they don't care what we say. It's it's about Vladdy. Charlie's going to go to Vladdy and go, "Hey, do you feel comfortable hitting second? Not not really. I feel rushed. Okay, you're hitting third. Is that does that make you feel more comfortable? Yeah, I feel comfortable there. I like that. I'm gonna I'm gonna drive in a bunch of runs and I'm gonna hit a bunch of homers hitting third. You know, it's it's let's not read too much into where he's standing at. Do that perfect world. He always comes up to the plate when it matters the most. That that's not feasible. It's, it's not going to happen all the time that way. And I would rather have four for four. Three homers, and he'd be okay with a two-run lead and him standing on the on-deck circle with two outs in the top of the ninth inning. I'm okay with that. Yeah, yeah. I, I think it's yeah. it, it's the point was of that discussion is we know that was talked about in the organizationally, and it makes sense. We we also mentioned. I mean, the Washington Nationals are going through the same thing with Juan Soto um, and trying to convince Juan Soto that hitting second will get you an extra. I think Davey Martinez said. Last year, there yeah. was 17 games where he ended up in the on-deck See, that's circle. more of an individual thing for me. They're, they're trying to put him in the right spot to win an MVP. And make more money. They're, try, they're trying to put Vladdy in, a, in the right position to help this team go to the World Series. It's a big difference. Let's talk a little bit about tonight's game. Look ahead to Kevin Gossman's start against Luis Severino. Uh, Kevin Gossman, I, the first time through the rotation, Kevin Gossman and Alec Manoa kind of gave you what you thought they'd give you and in Alex's case he, he gave you what you, you needed I thought Kevin Gossman uh, he grinded and I, I've talked about this I was perfectly fine with what I saw from Kevin Gossman uh, in that game against Texas what are you looking for from Kevin Gossman tonight location of the elevated fastball it's real simple for me when he does have that when whoever's catching puts the glove up above the strike zone on the elevated fastball he hits the glove that, I think, will tell you that he feels right mechanically and mentally, and that will make the split finger that much better. So I think that's a big key for him. And I think his last start made it real simple for him to know what he needed to correct. Fastball command. When you're a veteran guy and it's real simple for you, I could walk away from that start going, when they gave the target above the strike zone, I was missing more middle. I can't do that. I don't throw hard enough to miss middle. I'm going to get hammered, especially in American League East. I need to work on that, whatever that is. Finish, release point, grip, whatever it is, out of the glove. It could be a numerous things, whatever will tell you that if I do this, I can correct it. And when I come back, I see the glove, I see the target, 
I can hit that target and I will be real good because of the tunneling of the split finger will feed off of that. The hitter has to respect that. You get more swing and misses. You go deeper in games. Any, yeah, we, we've talked a bit about uh, Alec Manoa and learning from, uh, and, and learning from, from Kevin Gossman. Is there anything Kevin Gossman could have picked up from watching Alec Manoa pitch to the Yankees? Uh, two different pitchers for me. Alec Manoa can get through a start with one pitch. Okay. A sinker and a fast and a four seamer. Yeah. I, I can can Kevin Gosman do that? Probably not. Like he doesn't throw hard enough. It's not sneaky enough. He doesn't have a heavy ball. Right. He's trying to have a little trickery. Look, it looks like a fastball. It's a split finger. You're gonna get some weak swings out in front. Uncomfortable at bats off of Gosman because of that pitch. You never know really when he's gonna throw it. So I, I'm not real sure. Maybe I, I I would think no. But again, these these guys are very individual. I know they talk a lot, but it is very individual. Where you know Ross has done a good job of spreading it out, of been there and done it, because they're trying to win a championship. You know, it's not you can't have a ton of work in progresses. Uh, Pete doesn't have any errors. It is. So you can't have that many. I just don't think. I just don't think it works that way. I, I know they like to have fun and say I'm learning this, the grip and that and this and. It's a very individual sport when it comes to a starting pitcher. And I just think Gosman's simple for me. Hit the target on the elevated fastball and everything else will take care of itself. Good misses with the heater. You have that? The split finger will work the way it's supposed to work because a hitter has to respect that. Now, if the Jays do win tonight, they'll have won three or four from the Yankees. Uh, They played really well against the Yankees, the Yankee Stadium last year we already know how the american league east how how it's going to look this year it, it's going to be a meat grinder would there be any because of where this team is taking three or four from the yankees big deal at this sure, time of huge, year even, that's even, a huge at, even at this time of the year you want a little cushion the american league east you're trying to get that get some separation from you and and the rays are going to be there because it's the rays and they do things uh the the yankees right are you you think you're a better team i know you asked a man to a man and with the Blue Jays, they think they are. They think they're a better team. Going to Yankee Stadium, taking three out of four with, you know, not having your cleanup hitter, not having your starting catcher. You yeah. walk away taking three out of four. With now you're thinking, just just wait till we're fully healthy. Right. What we can do. So, yeah, I'd be a ton of confidence. It'd be a huge deal for me anyway. And the schedule. They, they look at the schedule, especially the coaching staff. They Now, the players will probably take that game to game. It's more of a feel thing. I feel this. You know, I'm facing this guy the next day. Oh, man, I need to have a really big day tonight. Right. I need to get it done. So, it's very individual when it comes to that. But, yeah, if you're a coach, you're thinking, if we can take this without our cleanup hitter and our starting catcher, it's only going to make us better down the road when we do get everybody healthy. Yeah, it's... You know, they've got three at home against Oakland starting tomorrow. And then the schedule continues. The difficult part of the schedule continues. We said 20 of 23 games against the Yankees, the Red Sox, and the Houston Astros. And, you know, if you can get through this, uh, you got, uh, I would tell people to check out the Blue Jays schedule. There's a whole crap ton of games against the Baltimore Orioles late. And if you can make a little bit of hay right now when guys are trying to find their find their footing, poof. Yeah, too, and I think they got to establish some dominance at home. Make the Rogers Center scary to come in and play there. Just make it. Like, you know, for me, to win the American League, you should have to be 15 or 20 games above 500 at home. Can you do that? 
They, they got to. Look, look at the teams that win the American League East consistently every year. They are way up there at home. Like, they, you know, they play a little bit above 500 on the road, right. but they are dominant at home. Yeah, and we've already seen that this, you know, this ballpark, the Rogers Center, uh, when it's when it's full, I mean, it turns into yeah, it turns into a fortress. Just ask the ask the Kansas City Royals and ask the Texas Rangers from 2015 about what it was like. You know, it does. It becomes a it becomes a fortress. It becomes a difficult place to play, and um, yeah, it, it's th- this is it'll be fun at the end of this 23 game stretch to sit down and see where we are with different players and different pitchers in this team. Yeah, well, too, for me, with with missing Teoscar for a little bit of time, who's not going to put pressure on themselves thinking they have to carry the team? Will it be Bo? Will it be Lourdes? Will it be Matt Chapman? Mm-hmm. You know, the other guys at the bottom of the order, probably not. I don't think they're capable of doing that. But bigger boys that think they have to step up, expand, overswinging, can they stay within themselves and, and take what the pitcher gives them? That'll be something, too, to look at. So that is it for us today. Uh, you can follow, uh, check out sportsnet.ca for all the Blue Jays information. I'm sure once we get an update on Teoscar Hernandez, uh, Arden is with the team. I'm sure he'll post something on it. And Again, as far as we know right now, it is a left side discomfort. He went for an MRI last night. I'm sure the Jays already know what they're doing. They just haven't announced it. Uh, but anyhow, we'll find out before the game today. First pitch is 7.05 on Sportsnet 590, the fan and Sportsnet. Ben Wagner with the call on the radio side. And as always, when the game is over, tune in to Blue Jays Talk with Kevin Barker and myself. 416-870-0590, star 590, 1-888-666-0590. Or you can listen to us when we're done on podcast, wherever you get your favorite podcast. For all of us here at Blair and Barker, have a great day.